You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number 75. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. As many of you know, in addition to being a mom, which is my favorite job in the world, and also hosting this podcast, I'm an attorney, and I own my own law firm, The Carney Firm. I specialize in being general outside counsel for small businesses and also intellectual property matters such as registering a trademark and counseling and other intellectual property matters. I love helping small businesses, and I'm also a business consultant for them as well. So if you're a mama and you own your own business, I would be so honored if you would consider reaching out to me for a free consultation. You can reach me at emily at thecarneyfirm.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at attorney Emily. I'm also a mom-friendly lawyer. Some of my clients are mothers. I'm a mother. And so if you have a loud child in the background on a phone call with me, it does not matter to me whatsoever. As long as you're okay with it, I'm okay with it. And for a disclaimer by law, I'm required to say that this is attorney advertising and also is not legal advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mother Good Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different because instead of having a guest on, it's just going to be me talking about the history of breastfeeding. I did a lot of research. I'm not a historian, but I love researching kind of a nerd like that. And from the downloads I've seen in the past episodes where uh, we've done the history of different topics like the history of motherhood. Uh, you know, can moms do it all, those sorts of topics, and where we've done a ton of research on a subject, me and another guest that I've had on, those seem to be our most popular episodes. So I figured I would just do another one, but on the history of breastfeeding, the goal mainly to show how breastfeeding has existed throughout the centuries, because I'm just shocked at how it's changed so much over time. It's a very complex history. It's not not so simple. Uh, and no, uh, <laughs> breastfeeding has never used to be easier than it is now. It's always been a very complex thing, uh, unlike what a lot of people think in modern times that it seems, I know that there's that false notion that a lot of people have that the difficulty with breastfeeding is more of a ph modern phenomenon. There are a lot of modern influences that could impact your ability to breastfeed. But again, we'll, we'll get into all of that in a little bit. But also just the main goal of the episode, why I think it's important to dive deep into all of this history is to reduce mom guilt for moms who feel like they failed for not being able to breastfeed. Now, breastfeeding is surprising, surprisingly like the only part of motherhood that has actually come easy for me <laughs> in terms of the physical aspect. Uh, for our longtime listeners, you probably know that pregnancy and delivery and postpartum have just been extremely difficult for me. I, I've gone into it in the past, just I have had symphysis pubis dysfunction, extremely painful, and I, I actually still struggle with it a little bit. You know, some of the the consequences of that to this day, still doing my, you know, physical therapy uh, regularly, not not going regularly, but doing like the home exercises, those types of things just to to keep up on it. But anyway, I digress. My point is, 
the physical aspect of motherhood is has been very difficult for me, and I'm lucky that breastfeeding is literally the only one that I have not struggled with. So all that to say, I do, even though I can't relate to the struggles of breastfeeding per se, I can relate to the struggles of a physical aspect of motherhood and feeling like your body has failed you because I have felt that so, so many times over the past five years with how extremely difficult pregnancy and delivery is for me. So with that, before I get into the episode, though, I just wanted to take a few minutes to thank all of our listeners, our new listeners, and also our longtime listeners. This podcast has been going on for three years now. Actually, a little bit over three years ago, we started in July of 2019. And now it's September of, well, I'm recording this September, um, We'll see when I air it, maybe in the next few days, <laughs> September of 2022. And I just wanted to give a huge thank you to all, all of our listeners. We now average around 800 to 1,000 downloads per episode. So that's 800 to 1,000 women who are tuning in regularly to listen to this podcast. And sure, it's, I'm no Joe Rogan, but that's still quite a bit of complete strangers that I have no idea who all of you are. So I just want to thank you for your support. And also feel free to drop me a note like an email or an Instagram DM at any time. Because I'd love to get to know you. I the only people I know who listen to this are basically I know my friends listen, but I definitely don't have a 1000 friends. Uh, So that's only a very small handful. But other than that, I don't know who the rest of you are. So I would love to connect and meet you and, uh, you know, find out what's going on in your life. And I just genuinely feel the sense of community with all of you. And I'm just so honored that you choose to tune in all the time to listen to each episode. It's truly an honor. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey. And you know, as always, feel free to rate us uh, in the Apple app or wherever you listen to the podcast, because that obviously helps with rankings. And also people who are interested in the podcast like to see, you know, what what the, the ratings are. So as I mentioned, I'm doing this podcast a little bit differently, because it's just me talking. I'm just actually it's like 1015 at night. I'm just sitting on the couch. I usually record in uh, the home office that we have, sitting in my sweats, covered up with a blanket with a cup of decaf coffee. So now you can picture <laughs> what, how I record these podcasts. It's not necessarily glamorous, but uh, I hope that it feels like you're just in my home having a nice little chat with me. So here we go. So motherhood is hard. I think we all know that, everyone who is a mom. And breastfeeding can be one of those really hard aspects of motherhood, making it even more difficult. So in this episode, I'm going to touch on three points. First, why it matters. Why does it even matter to look at the history of breastfeeding? Secondly, having a historical look at breastfeeding all the way back through ancient times And we'll go uh, time period by time period looking at how breastfeeding has always been so complicated. We've always had a very complicated relationship with breastfeeding, both as a society and us individually as women. And then third, we'll look at the shame aspect of breastfeeding because no discussion of breastfeeding would be complete without a discussion on shame and how it plays a role in breastfeeding. So first, why does it matter? Why should we even be having this conversation? 
Well, a couple months ago, I remember talking to a mom friend of mine after church and she made some comment about breastfeeding and it being hard. And then I just said something how, you know, women didn't always used to breastfeed. I think that there's just this misconception that since breastfeeding is natural and that formula is more of a modern phenomenon, that not being able to breastfeed is kind of a modern problem, right? Uh, But that's actually very incorrect. And when I mentioned that a little bit of the history aspect to my friend, she was so shocked and she just found it so interesting and actually made her feel better about the situation she was in. So in a nutshell, women have always at least in recorded history, struggled with breastfeeding. And not all women were able to breastfeed or even wanted to breastfeed necessarily. In fact, there was a time when the upper class and wealthy women did not want to breastfeed because breastfeeding was considered too primitive or animalistic. And then they had wet nurses instead. I'll get into that part more in a bit when I go over the history part of it. But back to why it matters. Why is it important to look at the history of breastfeeding and the fact that it has never been easy for all women to breastfeed. There's even a current trend to idealize motherhood and as natural and a mind over matter type thing. It it seems like that's a new age type of mindset that's infiltrating motherhood and honestly even religion and many other aspects of our society that as long as you have the right tools and the right mindset that mothers can overcome any obstacle and obtain a motherhood that is easy and in tune with nature. Now, I'm not saying that women don't need tools or support or all that, because I do, I do mention that later that it is important to support uh, breastfeeding mothers. But the issue is that not every single issue related to motherhood can be solved with a mind over matter thing. Some things are real issues that don't really have a solution. I know, I know how bad that sounds because there's this whole empowered motherhood movement going on that you can do anything you want. I think women can do many, many things, but if we're thinking that we can do literally everything and that we we have no physical limitations. I really think that's just setting us up for failure. Obviously, there's lots of exceptions that I'm not going to go into because I know I can just hear some of you say, but what about breastfeeding support or this example or that? And I can even think of examples myself. So I'm just overgeneralizing at this point. But Again, uh, since it's not reality that every single woman will be able to breastfeed, even with all the support that she can possibly have. We have to also remember that just because something is, quote, natural doesn't mean it comes easy, right? Or doesn't mean that it's actually even a good thing. I think of something that my grandpa actually said. He's since passed away a few years ago, but he was just making fun of products that say natural on them because he was saying, well, what does that even mean? Because uh, there's lots of chemicals that are quote natural, but if you ingested them, they would be poisonous, right? So it's kind of like, what? How are we defining natural, right? So it's not necessarily a good thing. In this instance, I'd like to make the comparison that just because something is natural, like childbirth, motherhood, breastfeeding, at the same time, we have to remember that we live in a flawed and broken world, right? Our world is filled with pain and failures. Life is natural, right? Our whole life is natural and it's beautiful, but it's also filled with a lot of pain. And so nothing, not even something that's quote natural always goes according to plan. And I also heard recently, gosh, I can't remember who who it was. It was, it was some, gosh, I'm not going to be able to remember who it was. But basically, they were saying that they were just complaining about a lot of problems that they were having. And so their father actually took them to a grave because they said 
this is the only place where you're never going to have any failures or troubles is the grave. And that just really stuck with this person. So to live is to experience problems and pain. It's, it's a part of living. It's not about being perfect, but about the journey, right? And so mother good, our whole mission is that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one that kind of encapsulates what our mission and our motto is. And so the history of breastfeeding gives credence to our breastfeeding journey, not only collectively, but also individually. So we can relate to the collective struggles of women and having this this struggle with breastfeeding. Another kind of side tangent that I can think of, of how unnatural, quote, unnatural childbirth and motherhood can be for women. It's something called the obstetric dilemma. And I do want to have another episode digging deeper into this, but a quick summary of that obstetrical dilemma is it's a hypothesis to explain why humans require assistance to give birth and compared to animals <laughs> that seem to give birth with relative little difficulty. So I know that there are women out there who are able to give uh, give birth unassisted, but when you compare women as a whole with animals who give birth, I mean, it's pretty objective that women as a whole have a much, much harder job giving birth than animals. And no one really knows why that is. The obstetrical dilemma, uh, the hypothesis is basically since the, you know, the fetal head is so large compared to animals and it has to fit through such a narrow maternal birth canal Compare again, compared to our animals, like the proportion of the head to the birth canal is a lot greater than most animals. And no one really knows why that is. Uh, but I, again, this is kind of a side tangent, but I only bring it up because it explains the why behind why women's childbirth is so much more difficult than animals and also why childbirth, which is something that's also very, quote, natural, doesn't always go according to plan and is not easy at all, right? And why (laughs) there's a reason why uh, before modern medicine that 20, I saw the statistic is 25 out of every 1,000 births, the mother died. This, This is before modern medicine, right? And that's staggering statistic. It's crazy to think about. So before the advent of C-sections and and modern medicine and uh, women being able to, I know hemorrhage is a a, a big cause of maternal mortality as well. So um, on one of our most recent podcast episodes with Dr. Howe, she said that being able to get a blood transfusion is one of the main lifesavers for women in childbirth. So I bring all of this up just to kind of give a comparison to breastfeeding that it seems so natural, right? But at this, it, and it is, and it's so beautiful, but at the same time, it can be so difficult and it doesn't always go according to plan. So the, the Office of the Surgeon General wrote something in 2011 called Barrier to Breastfeeding in the United States. And in it, they state that breastfeeding is often described as natural. And even though we think of it as natural, it's actually an art that has to be learned by both the mother and the newborn. So I do want to also uh, recognize this aspect of it as well, as I was saying that sometimes women just need the support. You have to learn the skills and how to hold and position a baby at the breast, how to achieve an effective latch. That's why there's lactation consultants are great. 
and other breastfeeding techniques have to be taught. There's that expectation that breastfeeding is going to be so easy and then a lot of women find themselves with challenges. And so there's this incongruity between expectations about breastfeeding and the reality of the mother's early experiences. And that's uh, one of the main reasons why the Office of the Surgeon General say that women actually stop breastfeeding within the first two weeks postpartum. That's one of the big, the, the major reasons why. On the other hand, there's also some women who are anticipating the difficulties with breastfeeding. And because of that, they're just a little hyper alert, I guess you could say, about it being an actual option, right? And so that kind of plays into it as well. And of course, there's other barriers to breastfeeding other than lactation problems that the Office of the Surgeon General mentions, lack of family or social support, social norms, embarrassment, employment and childcare. I'll definitely touch on this later. It's a big problem now in modern society of, especially in the US, for those of you, I know we have a lot of listeners in Europe actually and overseas. You're very lucky, at least those of you in Europe and Iceland, I've seen some people uh, listen from there too. We have great <laughs> maternity leave options in the United States. We just don't have those options. Thankfully in the state of California where I live, a lot of women do. But again, even in California, hourly wage workers don't get those options. So it's a very sad situation, but I'll touch on that later. So now, the fun part of looking historically at breastfeeding. I find it fascinating that in ancient times, breastfeeding was exalted. It was literally goddess-like. Ancient Greeks believed the breast milk of a goddess made those who drink it immortal. And according to Greek mythology, the Greek goddess Hera created the Milky Way from her breast milk. I found this so fascinating. So basically, I'll never look at them or think of the Milky Way the same or look at it the same way again. So how it goes in Greek mythology is that Hera nursed Hercules and Hercules nursed too hard. I'm sure we can all relate to that, all of us who have breastfed. <laughs> Hercules nursed too hard so that she removed Hercules from her nipple, spraying breast milk onto the heavens that created the Milky Way. I mean, that is just so poetic, right? <laughs> That's And we still call it the Milky Way to this day, obviously. I just want, I, I never learned that in school or since then. And I just, it's so fascinating to me. And also there's the whole idea that Hera's breast milk made Hercules invincible. So I guess there's always been even this ancient belief that breast milk was so good for babies, right? And it is. Uh, so but mother's milk was considered a miracle fluid also, which could cure people and give wisdom. The Greek goddess of wisdom, Sophia, apparently according to legend, suckled philosophers at her breast. And by this way, they absorbed wisdom and moral virtue. <laughs> it's just, I don't know why. I'm probably, you guys will have to DM me and tell me. Am I the only one like geeking out on this? Usually I have, since I have another guest on, usually I'm like, am I the only one that finds this fascinating? I mean, if my friends and I tend to be nerds, so like I know they do, but I'd love to hear what you guys think <laughs> on the, all of this stuff. I just find it so fascinating that even the ancients had this fascination with breast milk, right? And were thinking of all these mythology stories to accompany it, right? It's just, that's the part that, that gets me, is that we've always had this interesting relationship with breastfeeding where it's just been so exalted that the Greeks even made these stories about the, the goddesses up, right? And there's also a lot of ancient art depicting a, a woman breastfeeding a child. I'm sure you go into any art museum and it's everywhere, right? It's just the epitome of being a woman 
it's just goes hand in hand, you know, breastfeeding and what it means to be a woman. It seems to be a source of identity in the ancients and an identity of women. And I think even nowadays, we as women associate that as part of our identity too, which is why we struggle with it, right? When it failed, when we failed to live up to that expectation. Again, I'll touch on later with the the shame aspect of it. So in my research, I found this very interesting article in the Journal of Perinatal Education. It's called The History of Infant Feeding from the Spring of 2009. And it gave a lot of historical context to breastfeeding. And I got a lot of my history from this particular article. So basically, the historical evolution of feeding for an infant includes wet nursing, using a bottle, and formula use, which is obviously only in modern times. Uh, But similar to modern times, breastfeeding infants was not always possible. Big shocker. Women, some women were unable to breastfeed, even going back thousands of years. And one major reason, obviously, as I already mentioned, is that a lot of women died in childbirth. So it was estimated that 25 per 1,000 births before modern medicine, uh, the mom would die, right? And so obviously, the mom can't breastfeed if she's passed away way sadly so tragic so then the family was left with a baby and I mean how are you going to feed a baby without his or her mom right how are you going to breastfeed so to solve this wet nurses were used and a wet nurse was someone who breastfed someone else's child and wet nurses began as early as 2000 BC there's evidence that wet nurses were used during that time all the way up until modern times actually So throughout this time period, wet nursing evolved from an alternative of need to an alternative of choice. So around 2000 BC, wet nursing was more used only when necessary, right? But then around 950 BC to all the way till 1800 AD, it was actually a matter of choice, right? Do you want to breastfeed or do you want to use a wet nurse? Kind of like how we still have that choice now. Do you know, do you want to, or some people have that choice, do you want to breastfeed or do you want to use formula, right? And it actually... As it evolved in the Roman time period, it became well-organized profession with contracts and laws designed to regulate its practice. So the Egyptian encyclopedia in the year 1550 BC, it's the first medical encyclopedia that actually had a prescription for what they call lactation failure. Sounds similar to what we experience today, right? And it was describing ancient Egyptian women who struggled with breastfeeding. And it, it said in this encyclopedia, to get a supply of milk, in a woman's breast for suckling a child, warm the bones of a swordfish in oil and rub her back with it, or let the woman sit cross-legged and eat fragrant bread of dura, I don't even know what that is, while rubbing the parts of the poppy plant. (laughs) Obviously, I don't think that really worked. I don't know, maybe it's a home remedy that does. Let me know if you try it. I don't even know what those... that dura thing is Uh, if you do dm me so i know uh but i just found it so interesting so there is evidence written evidence that even ancient women struggled with breastfeeding and then in ancient israel that obviously children were deemed a blessing but it was the first time that breastfeeding was actually connected with a religious obligation and the Bible even notes, obviously, several examples of wet nurses, including the famous example of the woman who was hired by Pharaoh's daughter to nurse Moses um, when she found him in the bulrushes. 
So then moving a little bit forward into the history in Greece in about 950 BC, women in higher social status, they actually wanted wet nurses because they didn't want to breastfeed themselves for whatever reason, right? And so then they would have their slaves breastfeed as a wet nurse or find or hire another wet nurse. And then, as I mentioned, in the Roman Empire around 30, 3, uh, 300 BC and 400 AD, that's when there were the written contracts to outline all the parameters around what you can do, uh, what wet nurses can do with, with the children, right? So I found it fascinating that there were Greek medical authors and then also even a Franciscan friar who they decided that they wanted to write some guidelines for what wet nurses should do to make sure that it was more of a maternal environment that they were part of. For example, Galen of Pergamus uh, around 130 AD, he said that wet nurses uh, should soothe infants through swaddling movement, rocking and singing lullabies. That sounds so nice. So basically he's saying that that the wet nurses have to basically, you know, do what the mothers would do to have more of that personal touch. And then same with the Franciscan friar, Bartholomius Anglicus. I'm really bad with these ancient names. <laughs> but basically, he described some qualities and duties as well for wet nurses. And he said, a nurse rejoices with a boy when it rejoices and weeps with him when he weeps, just like a mother. She picks him up when he falls, gives the little one milk when he cries, kisses him as he lies, holds him tight, and gathers him up when he sprawls, washes, and cleans the little one when he makes a mess of himself. Again, it sounds so lovely. So basically, it sounds like a lot of authority at the time were trying to set some parameters around wet nurses, right? So that they were having more of that maternal atmosphere. And then we get to the Middle Ages, which is when the first backlash against wet nurses comes and the belief that breast milk was, quote, magical. This is when shame starts to enter the picture, right? The shame that we still experience in modern times. So it's sounds- Sounds like it goes back to the Middle Ages is when we can see that tension between those who breastfed and those who did employed wet nurses. So during the Middle Ages, society regarded childhood as a special time of vulnerability, which I think is equivalent to what we believe now, right? So breast milk at that time was deemed to possess magical qualities, and it was believed that breast milk could transmit both physical and psychological characteristics of the wet nurse. And so as a result, the belief resulted in protests against the hiring of women for wet nursing. And once again, a mother nursing her own child was valued as a saintly duty. But then we fast forward to the Renaissance period. There was also more widespread disapproval, mostly by the medical community. It seems like from the written documentation of wet nursing and a preference for mothers breastfeeding their own children. But despite the medical community not really approving of the wet nurses, the societal class tended to dictate breastfeeding practices. So it was basically unusual for a wealthy woman uh, of very high class to breastfeed because it was considered unfashionable. And also women worried it would ruin their figures, which it probably does. (laughs) I'm just saying. But it sounds like that that played a big factor into them deciding that they simply didn't want to breastfeed. And so they were just going to use wet nurses instead. Uh, But it's interesting to note, again, in this article from the journal, that it said that breastfeeding also prevented many women from wearing the socially acceptable clothing at the time, which I would agree with that because I 
can't even imagine in those outfits how they would breastfeed. Although I will say that in a lot of the art in the art museums I've seen, it seems like they just the women just pull down the whole front part of their dress, right, to breastfeed. So I don't know. I guess they just had to undress. Maybe maybe that's why there's a lot of artwork on it too, because you the woman would basically have to undress her whole half top to to breastfeed, right? It's not no real modesty really factoring into that. Um, not that I think there should. I'm just saying that based on what they wear, it seems like they would basically have to undress themselves to breastfeed. Uh, the journal also noted that it interfered with social activities, breastfeeding did, for the upper class women, such as playing cards and attending theater performances. The wives of merchants, lawyers, and doctors also did not breastfeed because it was less expensive to employ a wet nurse than it was to hire a woman to run their husband's business or take care of the household and their place. And that's something pretty interesting to note, right? That women, even in the Renaissance period, were making those decisions like, oh, I'm just not going to breastfeed, right? I'm just going to hire a wet nurse. Kind of like some women now in modern times just say, you know what? Breastfeeding is too hard. I'm going to make the choice to formula feed, right? So again, at this part of going back into the history, we can see how women throughout the centuries have made decisions to nurse or not to nurse, right, based on their individual circumstances. And it wasn't always because they couldn't physically, but maybe it was more of a monetary decision, or maybe they just simply didn't didn't want to, just like it, that's, and that's fine, right? Perfectly fine. So wet nursing did remain a popular, well-paid, and highly organized profession during the Renaissance period. And according to this journal article, it actually was the occupation of prime choice for many poor women because many young unmarried or even some married women who were very poor, if they had a child, they would sadly, very tragically, they would get rid of it prior to seeking employment as a wet nurse. Uh, and then in France, wet nurses were even registered with their local employment bureau and there were laws developed and enforced to regulate the employment, which is crazy to think about. So now we fast forward to the Industrial Revolution in the 18th and 19th century. The practice of wet nursing shifted away from wealthy families to laboring lower income families as they moved from rural to more urban areas, which is fascinating. So wet nursing now no longer is something that the rich do, but it's actually the lower income families because the women had to go out and work. <laughs> See, this is why it's so fascinating. It's such a complex history. As we move through each different time period, the re reasons why women did or did not breastfeed are different. And they varied by class based on the centuries, which is so fascinating, right? So some... In some time periods, breastfeeding, uh, you know, was more of something that wealthier women did. And other times it was more of what the poor women, women did. Uh, but it does seem like the common theme, though, is that in general, the wealthier woman, women did not want to do it as much in general. It does seem to be that way. So again, in the Industrial Revolution, the increased cost of living and poor wages that forced many women, unfortunately, to seek employment and contribute financially to their family. And of course, that made it impossible for many mothers to breastfeed and attend to their children. And many of the children were farmed out to destitute peasant women. Uh, and even though wet nursing existed for a while, the natural mother was still preferred 
in society for breastfeeding and raising children. But it's interesting to note that during that same time period, the Industrial Revolution, the governments in Europe didn't like the practice of wet nurses because of the high mortality rate it caused in newborns because their mothers abandoned them or weren't able to nurse them um, because they were wet nurse to some some other woman's baby. And so the government recognized, hey, we're, we're losing a big source of our uh, population, right? To Because as a result of wet nursing. And so they're really worried about uh, the population decreasing. So in that time, then there was emerging natural sciences during the 18th century that argued that women should stay at home to nurse and raise their children just like animals do. And that the government, the governments in Europe actually launched campaigns against the custom of wet nursing among the higher class because they wanted to promote them to just breastfeed. And in some cases, women were even advised or forced by law to nurse their own children. There's this really interesting article in Time Magazine called Desperate Women, Desperate Doctors, and the Surprising History Behind the Breastfeeding Debate. It's written by Lily Rothman, who wrote a book on the subject uh, from July of 2018. And in it, she notes that, which I found was very surprising, I had no idea that this actually was a case that wet nursing in the United States was actually a viable occupation until the 1920s. And she actually found wanted ads in newspapers and doctor's papers uh, to to prove it. So there's written record that wet nursing was actually an occupation during that time. And also hospitals in the U.S. even had wings of wet nurses who were usually impoverished, impoverished, desperate women, which is very sad. So wet nurses, again, they were usually single women who had been abandoned by their families or the father of their children. And then sadly, again, if they went to work for a private family, many times the the private family, uh, according to this Times Magazine article, said that the private family would almost never allow these young women to bring their own baby with them. So unfortunately, the baby had to be given to a foundling home, which is so tragic, uh, which many times that meant that the, the baby died. And often what it meant was that the wealthy baby would live and the poor baby died. And that's kind of the whole history of wet nursing in the United States, which is very tragic. And in this Time Magazine article also notes that there was a mix of breastfeeding and wet nursing among wealthy women. And there's also evidence there was a very complicated relationship. There are some wealthy women who were very heartbroken that they weren't able to breastfeed. But then there's also just like in modern times right now that there's a lot of evidence of women who are just as happy to hand their their women or their women, their children over to a wet nurse. So again, it's just such a complex history. It's no one size fits all, right, to what people did during a certain time period. You can't really go back to one point in time and say, and during this time period, everyone, quote, everyone did this, right? Sounds like it's very complex within each period of history. Although uh, we can note that there were general consensus around what was done generally, right? But there are always exceptions. So now we get to the 1950s. We're almost there, right? Almost to modern times. The 1950s, the predominant attitude to breastfeeding that it was something practiced by the uneducated and those of lower classes. 
just find it. It seems like breastfeeding is almost something that goes in and out of fashion, right? Like one one day it's it's fashionable to wear a hat or a certain type of hat, and the next day it's not. Like history of fashion, I feel like it's similar to the history of breastfeeding. <laughs> it's so bizarre to me. Like who is making these quote rules of f- the fashion of the trends of breastfeeding? It's it's so weird to me. I don't I don't understand it. But it is fascinating. So here we are, 1950s. Now it's only something, breastfeeding is only something that uneducated and those of lower class do, right? And the practice was considered old-fashioned and, quote, a little disgusting for those who could not afford infant formula. And it was actually discouraged by medical practitioners and media at the time, right? So talk about peer pressure, You actually have medical practitioners and the media making breastfeeding seem something gross, right? But starting in the 1960s, then there was a steady resurgence in the practice of breastfeeding in Canada and the U.S., especially among the more educated affluent women. So that seems to be the start of the trend now, right, where we go to promoting women to breastfeed. So now to current times, which I love talking about modern day struggles with breastfeeding because, again, it's a very complex relationship with breastfeeding. Always want to acknowledge those who can't breastfeed from a purely physical aspect, right? Or maybe it's extremely difficult to breastfeed. I know I have a friend who wasn't able to breastfeed her child because her child had a really bad suck. So I'd, it wasn't her per se, it was her child and had like a, I think it was like a tongue-tied type situation. And um, she actually pumped. I forgot for how many months she could, ex- she had to exclusively pump and then bottle fe- bottle feed, um, and then eventually could switch over to breastfeeding. And I really admired her determination to do that, right? But I don't know if I could have done that because I probably would have just, I think I would have given up, right? And just say that I can't, I can't do that, uh, which is, it's, it's fine, right? But I also admire that she had that stamina to do that. But again, it's not for everyone. It's not for something that we're required to do. And it obviously is nice that every woman has a choice on what she wants to do. And if it's just physically impossible, or even if she just chooses not to, then that's perfectly fine. So again, acknowledging the physical aspect, maybe it's just too hard, um, or even mentally too hard. I also have another friend that just mentally was just too emotional for her and she quit. And obviously that's fine too. But putting aside those types of situations, right? Just thinking of the women who actually want to breastfeed and can physically breastfeed. There's also these other external factors in our society that are preventing women from breastfeeding. And especially in the United States, according to the Office of uh, of the Surgeon General article that I mentioned earlier, that a lot of women struggle with breastfeeding. Surprise! Because they have to go to work too soon after having their baby. This is where I could go on a really angry rant for forever because it makes me so angry to think that women in our modern society still, at least in the United States, aren't getting the maternity leave protections or paid maternity leave that they deserve. I just think that they deserve it. Now, I know I've posted on this in the past on the Motherhood page and I do get some DMs saying, but that's socialism. Okay, I would like to point out... (laughs) So many things that the United States funds that we don't say is socialism, right? Like the post office or libraries or police or firefighters, right? Basically everything else that's essential to the well-being of our society 
is funded. But then for some reason, women having babies who are basically raising up the next generation of those in the workforce, that's not necessary, right? The government also funds things like schools and provides for the entire education of our children from kindergarten all the way up until a kid is 18. I know this is kind of a side tangent, but I think a lot of people throw around the word socialism without actually understanding what it is and without getting too much into political science. Socialism is actually the collective or governmental ownership and administration of the community as a whole so that there is no private ownership whatsoever. And that's different from something that's called a more regulated capitalism. I mean, there's actually people have so many different words for what a more regulated capitalist society is. But a completely unregulated capitalistic society is called laissez-faire. That's actually what we had in the United States under the Articles of Confederation before the Constitution. It was just complete non-governmental involvement. And as everyone knows, that didn't work, right? And so many people actually argue that the Founding Fathers had an intent to have direct government involvement in the economy, and that that was actually intended by the Founding Fathers as a response to the failures of a complete laissez-faire economy under the Articles of Confederation. So our history in the United States, I think a lot of people have this misconception that capitalism always means no direct involvement. Let, like, basically let the market decide, right? That's not the history that we have in the United States of America. That's not the history that we have for every single aspect of our society, especially when it comes to those that are part of the common good. We do have some sort of government involvement, direct government involvement in the economy, and that that actually was set up by the Founding Fathers, right? The Founding Fathers actually put in the Constitution that, for example, the post office should be funded by the government and other and all other aspects of our society where the money goes towards something for the common good, such as schools, what I already listed, or police, or firefighters, those essential type things, right? And I know this is a little bit of a side tangent, but I just wanted to point out that, but I just wanted to point out that just because someone is advocating for direct government involvement in a certain aspect of the economy, even if that's not necessarily having the government pay for paid family leave. Maybe it's even mandating that employers give their employees paid family leave, just like the government requires employers to offer unemployment insurance, workers' compensation and health insurance benefits to their employees, right? So these are all things that the government has to force employers to provide their employees. Otherwise, we probably would not be getting these benefits because the billionaires of the world would just want would rather have another billion in their pockets as opposed to actually helping their workers, right? I don't want anyone to think that I'm a socialist. I actually consider myself a capitalist, but someone who is for a more regulated capitalism, one that requires that morality is regulated into the capitalism so that our most vulnerable are taken care of. Actually, a capitalist society that our founding fathers actually envisioned, and that does go along with the original intent of our founding fathers. Because again, our founding fathers themselves 
did not advocate for a completely unregulated economy because of the failures of the Articles of Confederation, because that's initially what they thought would be best, right? Completely unregulated economy, and that utterly failed. <laughs> I think a lot of people gloss over that history in our early uh, the, the early founding of the United States of America. We th- often forget about the Articles of Confederation, how they, they were a huge failure. And part of that failure led to the brilliant genius of the United States Constitution, right? And so in the United States Constitution, that's why our founding father- fathers then thought, you know what? We do have to have some taxes because the government has to run. We do have to support some things that are for the common good, such as the post office, right? And so those are some of the wisdom of the early founding fathers. And I do believe that my beliefs are in line with the original intent of our founding fathers. A lot of people like to say that all of these things are black and white, and they're not. Everything exists on a sliding scale. And there's actually precedent that's in line with the Constitution and the original intent of our founding fathers to provide support for women, right? Whether it's government funded or if it's mandated that employers provide this coverage. There was actually even a Catholic pope in the early 1900s, Pope Pius XI, and he actually criticized both socialism and unrestrained capitalism. What I'm kind of talking about is where there's absolutely no regulation, right? Kind of a side tangent, but I did want to address the elephant in the room because that does seem to be the most common criticism of any type of support for women and paid family leave, right? There's a lot of criticism that paid family leave, whether if it's government mandated or by the employer, but mandated by the government for the employer to provide that that's somehow socialism. And I completely disagree. Again, once again, I think that that there is support for it for in a regulated capitalistic society. And even that there's constitutional support from an original intent standpoint. So there you go. Hopefully that convinced some of you who are on the fence on whether or not as, quote, socialistic to be an advocate for paid family leave. I could go on a whole other tangent on that. I'd just like to point out that, you know, just because someone's advocating for government paid leave on something doesn't mean you're a socialist because the government funds a bajillion things, right? And there's also so many things that it probably should not be funding or so much government waste. It bothers me that people always say that um, whenever paid family leave comes up in the, the context of being funded by the government, that that's socialism, but nothing else the government funds because that to me tells me that it's more of a sexism thing, right? So it's not actually that you're paying that the government's paying, but it's really only that it's paying for something woman-related, right? But I think, again, this is a big digression, but uh, I could go on a rant on this forever. So anyway, hopefully women in the United States will get better paid leave. And even, honestly, even if their job was protected, even if it wasn't paid, even if their job was protected, because the FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, doesn't protect so many women in the United States, especially lower income women who are hourly workers, 
It doesn't protect the most vulnerable, the women who need it the most. The FMLA doesn't even protect those women's jobs. Again, a big side tangent, but even if you don't support paid family leave, at the very least, we could support women's jobs being protected, especially the lower income women's jobs, because our current laws on the books don't support that. Uh, so anyway, according to the Office of the Surgeon General, employed mothers uh, typically find that returning to work is it shocking, a significant barrier to breastfeeding. Women often face inflexibility in their work hours and locations and lack of privacy for breastfeeding or expressing milk. They have no place to store or express breast milk. They're unable to find childcare facilities at or near the workplace. They have fears over job insecurity and they have limited maternity leave benefits. In 2009, the Society for Human Resources Management reported that only 25% of companies surveyed had lactation programs or made special accommodations for breastfeeding. Small businesses, fewer than 100 employees, are the least likely to have lactation programs. And whether the workplace is large or small, obviously infants aren't generally allowed to be there. So lack of maternity leave is a big, big, big barrier to breastfeeding in the United States. Studies show that women intending to return to work within a year after childbirth are less likely to initiate breastfeeding, and mothers who work full-time tend to breastfeed for shorter durations than do part-time or unemployed mothers. Women with longer maternity leaves are more likely to combine breastfeeding and employment. This is a crazy survey. In a survey of 700 12 mothers each week of maternity leave increased the duration of breastfeeding by almost one half week. So there's a direct correlation with each additional week of maternity leave, women breastfeed for a half week longer. It's, I mean, you can't get any more direct correlation than that, right? And so jobs that have less, less flexibility require obviously long separations of mother and baby and further complicates breastfeeding. And the Office of Surgeon General again acknowledges that hourly wage workers face different challenges than salaried workers because they have less control over their salaries usually and their pay is reduced if they take breaks to express breast milk. Gosh, the, all of this makes me so sad. Again, just in the United States, the lack of care towards uh, women and mothers. And for those of you listening, thinking, okay, well, the company should do it. I mean, but they're not. They've had decades. Companies have had decades to support women. They could write it off. It's a business expense, right? They could, there's a lot, like how many billions of dollars do CEOs in the United States need, right? I mean, they could at the very least channel like a fraction of that to support mothers, right? Again, a big tantrum, but it makes me so sad just to think of it. Now I'm just so sad thinking about that. A side tangent, I do know that there are some rare companies out there that do provide great paid family leave and those sorts of benefits, but those are outliers. That is not the norm. I just wanted to point that out because it's funny. Whenever I say a statement, I can always hear, oh, but what about this? Because I think that as well in my own head. So I'm kind of dismissing those as I go along. So I just want to address the side commentary that I even hear in my own head. And I can also just hear everyone else argue about it as well. I do know that those great companies are out there, but they are far and few between. And the vast majority of companies do not have a heart and they do not care. 
And yes, a side tangent, I do know that there are some rare companies out there that do provide great paid family leave and um, those sorts of benefits. But that's those are outliers. That is not the norm. I just wanted to point that out because it's funny. Whenever I say a statement, I can always hear, oh, but what about this? Because I think that as well in my own head. So I'm kind of dismissing those as I go along. So I just want to address the side commentary that I even hear in my own head. And I can also just hear everyone else argue about it as well. I do know that those great companies are out there, but they are far and few between. And the vast majority of companies do not have a heart and they do not care. So getting into a little bit of the bottle feeding history, though, because a lot of people think, okay, well, there's the wet nursing, which is a good analogy to our relationship now with formula, right? There's always the option, the modern option of formula versus breastfeeding. But there's actually an ancient history for bottle feeding as well. As well. So it, although it wasn't until the 19th century that there was more refined bottle feeding, that there actually is evidence that dating back thousands of years, even to the BC period, that there were there have been crude feeding bottles found um, dating back to the Roman era, the Middle Ages, and the Renaissance. So there are clay feeding vessels in 2000 that have been found in the graves of newborn infants, which is honestly, it's really sad because there were were cleanliness issues uh, surrounding the bottle-fed baby, sadly, because you know how we do all the sanitizing and all this. And I have heard some people say like, oh, what did people used to do with bottles? Like, it just seems excessive. But no, because literally they have found these clay feeding vessels in the graves of newborn infants, because obviously the cleanliness was an issue and that a lot of newborns who were bottle-fed actually died from infection, the ones that weren't breastfed or fed by a wet nurse, right? And they did a chemical analysis on the container's residue of these ancient bottles that they found that suggests that animal's milk was used in ancient times as an alternative to breast milk. So in the Middle Ages, there were perforated cow's horns that were the most common type of feeding bottle. And then in the 1700s, a lot of babies were fed from pewter and silver bottles. But in the early 19th century, the use of dirty feeding devices combined with the lack of proper milk storage and sterilization now that we have now, it actually led to the death of one third of all artificially fed infants during the first year of their life, which is so tragic. So, you know, if uh, the mother died in childbirth, wasn't able to breastfeed or couldn't breastfeed or, you know, couldn't find a wet nurse, a bottle fed babies before the 19th century did not have a really good outlook. So fast forwarding to the late 1890s when formula was first developed, it's interesting to know that the word formula is literally taken from mathematical formulas because physicians were trying to find a way to save babies' lives that they thought that there was a way they could, quote, like humanize cow's milk in like a form, like a formulaic type fashion and mimic the substance of it, like the percentage of fat, the percentage of protein, the percentage of milk sugar. They're just trying to be very scientific about it because they wanted to make it as close to human breast milk as they possibly could. And so all these formulas evolved and they were researched and they were supported with a bunch of studies. 
And then manufacturers began to advertise directly to physicians. And so by 1929, the American Medical Association formed the Committee on Foods that actually approved the safety and quality of formula composition. And that forced many infant food companies to seek the AMA approval or the organization's seal of acceptance. And then, of course, corporate America steps in as it always does, wanting to make a lot of money, right? So they were very aggressive in marketing these formulas. And unfortunately, it generated a lot of negative publicity for formula manufacturers as well because of just how aggressive they were. So that's all the research of what I did on the history of breastfeeding going in and out of the different time periods and through wet nursing and bottle feeding and formula and a complicated relationship with breastfeeding. So now you can see how it's always just been so complex. It's been a matter of need uh, versus also a matter of want in some instances, whether or not it's in fashion to breastfeed or not. But the third point I really wanted to touch on is mother shame, which is what Brene Brown actually calls shame as related to motherhood. And I really like this article. I found Brene Brown talking about this mother shame that she describes. And she actually said that motherhood was the experience that sealed her commitment to studying shame. And this is her definition of shame. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance or belonging. Women often experience shame when they are entangled in a web of layered, conflicting, and competing social community expectations. Shame leaves women feeling trapped, powerless, and isolated. And so that's what I really want all of you listening to come away with, to hopefully avoid not feeling the shame If it's a shame of not being able to breastfeed or just simply not wanting to breastfeed or choosing to formula feed, because there's a set of expectations for every single type of issue related to motherhood, right? And Brene Brown acknowledges those. She says there's big issues of whether or not to have kids, what age to get pregnant, how many children you should have, you know, how to, how you should present yourself as as a mother, or who your partner is, how to deal with infertility, what a quote, good mother should look like, and quote, what good nurturing should look like. And it's just so frustrating how every single aspect of motherhood comes with this expectation by society, or even sometimes expectations from individual women, right? I'm sure all of us, I mean, I mean, no, I have gotten that comment from either complete stranger or even a friend, whether they're well-meaning or not, who knows, or family member who says something and it really bothers you because you feel like a failure because of what they they have said, right? And so that's what makes shame so powerful is that it makes us feel trapped, powerless, and isolated. It makes us feel different or outside of the group. Uh, Brene Brown goes on to say that shame demands that we hide our, our shamed selves from others in order to avoid additional shame. But I've learned that when you look at shame, and shame-making experiences in a social context, something amazing happens. Shame turns into collective vulnerability and people realize that they are not alone. And so that's what I hope you all have taken away from this whole history of breastfeeding is that none of us are alone. Women have gone through this for centuries, right? And that this, in 
instance in time isn't the first time that we have struggled with breastfeeding and society demands of it. And I think a big part of the reason why breastfeeding is so polarizing and such an emotional topic for a lot of us moms is that uh, we form a big part of our identity as women when we become mothers because motherhood is, is a big part of our identity and we want to perform well, right? We want to do the best for our children and it's just very hard to make a decision about how to feed your child without getting some type of negative backlash, right? I mean, even women who breastfeed sometimes still get negative backlash. Up until recently, there was actually a law still on the books in North Dakota that if a woman breastfed in public or private, she had to do so in a quote, discreet and modest manner, whatever that means. I know I mentioned this actually at one of my mom's group recently and someone said, oh, what's wrong with being modest and discreet? But obviously the problem with that is that everyone defines that differently, right? All it takes is one offended police officer walking by and like, oh, that doesn't seem discreet and modest to me. Maybe a police officer walks by and sees some side boob and thinks, oh my gosh, there's side boob. That's not modest or discreet. Or maybe the mom has a crazy nursing child like both of my kids have been where they pull off the cover. And so the baby pulls off the cover suddenly and exposes the mom. And then the police officer just happens to be walking by at that point and then thinks, oh my gosh, she's flashing everyone. Ticket. You know, and so that's why it's really hard to define discreet and modest, especially when it comes to breastfeeding. Finally, that law was taken off the books. Only just last year, though, in 2021. So up until last year, that language was still on the books in North Dakota. That something similar actually used to be on the books in almost every single state, surprisingly. And so North Dakota was the last state holding on to that. And I'm so glad that they got rid of that because now women can just feel free to not have to be, quote, modest and discreet and all of that. I mean, I remember the first time that I was breastfeeding, it just the whole juggle of like the, the cover and trying to not flash anyone. It just causes so much anxiety already because I know a lot of first-time moms already want to be modest. They impose that on themselves and so they don't want to flash anyone. And I, I remember I was like that, especially in a, in a public place. And so I was trying to be so discreet about it, but then that just feeds into the anxiety and not wanting to breastfeed in public. And it's just a big barrier barrier to breastfeed. So anyway, I think that's so good that that's not on the on the books anymore. And that's just one example of the shame in our society that's imposed even on women who do choose to breastfeed, right? So you have shame for choosing to breastfeed because you're not breastfeeding, quote, discreetly or modestly. And then you could have shame for not breastfeeding or not breastfeeding long enough or maybe doing it too long. I actually still breastfeed my son who's two months away from being two years old. And I remember before I became a mom, I always thought that that was so weird when moms would breastfeed past one year. I totally was that person who judged like, oh, I could never, right? But then here I am doing it. It, it. it doesn't seem weird to me now that I'm doing it because I mean, he's always nursed, right? And so, I mean, he only does it in the morning and night. I don't even think he's really getting that much, but it's more of just He's he still acts like a baby and uh, it's, I think it's more of like an emotional need for him at this point, but I'm sure hopefully he's getting some, some other benefits too. But anyway, I just point that out because it seems like the shame aspect is a big trap because no matter what you choose, you're always going to be judged on it, right? Either negatively or positively, you're going to be judged on what you choose to do or maybe your body chooses to do it for you. So I hope all of you have the takeaway from this is just being blessed 
blown away about the complexity of breastfeeding and the relationship we've always had as a society with breastfeeding and a woman's body has always had with breastfeeding and know that if you're struggling or even if you've just chosen to breastfeed or to not breastfeed, that it's your choice and that you feel empowered to make the choice that's best for you and your baby. 